0: in for a a few teachings I'm going to do a couple more John chapter 14 there's nothing like a lapel mic when you have to snort you all get to join me in, in the snortness I'm glad to see you all here this morning hope you're having a good weekend uh, John 14 beginning again in verse 1 John 14:1. do not let your heart be troubled believe in God believe also in me In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Thank you so much, Lord, for speaking these words to your disciples that night and to us across all this time. Thank you for the promise and the blessing that it truly is to us, Lord, whether our days are good or bad, uh, blessed or evil, filled with the awareness of your presence or feeling alone, these words, Lord, they, they reach into our hearts. And I pray, Lord, you'll help us to take them that way so personally that we'll hear you speaking to us And regardless of any circumstances of our lives, that we will have an increase in our trust, an increase of faith, that we'll be all the more steeled for the final day to persevere until then. Father, I pray these words would capture the attention of anyone who is uncertain of Jesus or waffling in faith or even a declared non-believer altogether. I pray someone will hear this teaching, these words, your words, Lord, and be changed by them. For we know in these are our hope. We invite you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us and walk us through this again in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you read about this. Last week, it just dropped in the news. April of 2022, NASA via the Hubble telescope has now announced the visual discovery of the farthest star from earth ever measured. They're calling this arendelle arendelle which is the old english name or word meaning morning star it's used i think tolkien uses arendelle somewhere in in his uh, in his writings but this star just measured now furthest one out 28 billion light years away so think for a moment about the vastness of our universe Cheryl and I were just watching a movie the other night, uh, Stowaway. It's on uh, Netflix. And if you really have an hour and a half to completely waste and not get back, feel free to watch that. Anna Kendrick was cute, that was about it. Um, but no, it was another one of these outer space movies and of course they launch into space and they get into trouble in the middle of outer space and they had to walk across this thing called a tether to try and fix the problem. And it's always, who, who builds ships like this? I mean, come on. But we watched it and I remember just thinking about how, how vast, how empty, how, how would that feel to be out there somewhere between Earth and Mars? With nothing around you but, but stars and distant planets, and you're having to walk along this tether to try and fix this problem, and how, how incredibly small that would make you feel. And not only is the universe massive, distant, expansive, but it's expanding, it's getting bigger which makes us get even smaller and it's, it's ironic, but I got to address something here before I say anything else. There is a certain careless perspective that is trending in this generation. So bear with me. As I say very clearly, the universe is not a sentient force or a conscious personality. Now many of you are like, well, I know that, duh, exactly. But let me go a little further. The universe is not capable of channeling positive energy. It cannot direct fate or respond to your prayers. And I've heard more than I want to even re- repeat, people saying things like, well, I just cast my prayers out to the universe. What? What? It makes no sense to me. The universe is vast, it's expanding, it is cold and indifferent. And by the way, not cold and indifferent as in emotionally. It is created, it is not conscious. Yes, there are conscious beings in the universe, here we are. But in this expanse of outer space, the universe can no more care for you or about you than a rock, a tree, a blade of grass, or a piece of dirt. It is creation, this immense cosmic landscape, which you all know if you've read the Bible, if you have any faith whatsoever, that this was formed by the God who presents himself, get this, as Father, Father. So why a universe at all? Why this vast, amazing expanse Carl Sagan once speculated that if there's not intelligent life on other planets, as he always thought, that the universe seems like an awful waste of space. (laughs) Psalm 19, verse 1 tells me the heavens are telling of the glory of God, their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. My friends, this was all made that we might look up and see, from our puny perspective, something of his glory. And for all the wonder and splendor of creation and the created universe, it still doesn't come close to the glory of God. And yet, we can at least get a sense, which is why God dropped us on this tiny little ball in the middle of this vast expanse that we would look out and recognize. He is great. He is Awesome! He is beyond comprehension. We can join David and we can say, as he wrote in Psalm 8, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And then he says, drawing back, he says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and their revengeful cease But then he goes back out. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? The vast expanse tells of the glory and the splendor and the wonder of God. So if you wonder why do people still come up with alternative universal forces to God himself, I can give you two reasons. Number one is because we are born with an innate sense of glory beyond ourselves. So even for the non-believing person, they have a sense that there's something greater than they are. That there is a greatness that no human being can achieve. There is a greatness beyond us, a splendor above us. Everybody knows this. And we're also born with a deep spiritual longing to know and to be known this creator to know and be known to not be left alone I love what is written in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 which says he has also set eternity in their heart we have a sense of eternity all of us of the great beyond beyond the cold universe beyond the beyond he has set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. What? (laughs) I thought the universe was there to declare the glory of God. I thought eternity was in our hearts so we'd have a sense of God. And then he goes on to say, but so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning to end. Why? So that we would have to come to him to understand. We would have to seek him out. We would have to enter into a relationship with God as father before the rest of this would start to fall into place. And even though humanity still keeps foolishly distancing itself from God, Jesus came to draw us near, to bring us close. In fact, it was Jesus who says, Revelation twenty two sixteen 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So much for Arendelle, Jesus is the morning star. The morning star that is not far. He is the morning star that's right here. You don't need the Hubble to see him. And he speaks words, Jesus does, of intimacy and words of kinship, words of family. Jesus reveals the Father. And he speaks into loneliness and speaks into despair to invite us to our heavenly home. I think that's what I love most about John 14 is the simplicity and the beauty of talk about this heavenly home. John 14 was not spoken as a biblical passage to be studied. We should study it, and we have, and we read through it, and we think through it, and we process all the things that are here, and there is so much here. But when Jesus spoke it, remember, this was the night of his own betrayal. This was the darkest night of his ministry life, of his life on earth. And knowing his betrayal was already underway, Jesus looks around. He has shared some things with these guys, enough to trouble their spirits, enough that they're worried and they're concerned. This is not the normal talk of Jesus. Oh, he's mentioned things like this before, but we've always turned a corner and gone somewhere else. He's staying in this place. Jesus looks around the table at 11 troubled hearts. He's told them he's about to leave them. Where are you going, Lord? What are you leaving us for? What are you talking about? So they're anxious and they're disturbed and they're confused. So to these unsettled men, Jesus describes heaven, not the universe not what we would call the second heaven in fact in Hebrew thought there's the first, second and third heaven you know the Bible mentions these first heaven is the atmosphere, the blue sky or in our case the gray that we can see and then the second heaven is the atmosphere is beyond the atmosphere, outer space and then the third heaven is where God resides that's the way Jewish people would look at it and Jesus begins to talk about heaven but not outer space not somehow surviving on the tether good luck guys No, he talks about heaven as home, calling it my father's house, my father's house. Jesus came to draw us near and he's coming to get us home. Verse two, Jesus says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. First time that we hear Jesus refer to his father's house, he's 12 years old. 12 years old, and you know the story. The family had caravaned up from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the Passover week. They spent the week there together, and then they headed home. And Joseph and Mary assumed their preteen Jesus was somewhere in the caravan. They would all huddle, huddle together and, and travel together. They assumed they'd get back to the outskirts of Nazareth, and Jesus would come running up. Well, they travel for a bit and begin to realize they don't where he is they start to ask around have you seen jesus anyone seen little yeshua where is that kid and they begin to freak out because he's not in the caravan so you know they hot-footed all the way back up to jerusalem and they search for him for three days before they find him in the temple speaking with the scribes and the priests and he's blowing their minds and he says when his earthly mother and father, find him. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Why is it that you were looking at me? Now, any other teenager or preteen, you'd go, get in the car. (laughs) Why, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know? What do you mean, his father's house? Well, the temple was often called the bayit in Hebrew, house referred to as the house, the house of the Lord. And even as a boy, the temple represented to Jesus something wonderful, reminded Jesus of home. As close as he could get in physical representation in the flesh to that precious heavenly homeliness that he so longed for. Or not homeliness, that's ugliness, hominess. The hominess of heaven And Jesus uses this literal phrase, my father's house, two times. Only twice in the entire New Testament does he say my father's house. Here in John 14 and then back in John chapter 2. So it really wasn't in Luke 2.42 as a 12-year-old that he said my father's house. I'll explain that in a minute. But it's actually the first time we hear him say my father's house. It's John chapter 2 there's something in the way of about half of you over there I think I'll have to deal with that later John chapter 2 Jesus made a scourge of cords verse 15 drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and those who were selling the doves he said to them take these things away stop making my father's house a place of business And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Bait, the temple, the house of the Lord. Jesus was ticked off at the beginning of his public ministry. You all know if you read all the gospels together, he cleaned the temple out at the beginning. He did it again at the end, Matthew, Mark, Luke tell us. And so here at the beginning, he is angry. And if there was ever a time for Jesus to express a righteous, holy anger, that was it. You are offending me because you are offending my father because you have made my father's house an offense. This is not a place for your business. This is a place to draw near, to come to the Lord. Jesus loved his father's house because again, for him, it was a reflection of home. Earthly representation of all the comforts of his heavenly home. To some degree, David understood that as well. Psalm 27, verse four, David said, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David wrote that before there was a temple. Prophetically looking forward to the temple that would be built after he died. Psalm 122, verse one, He writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Something about going up to Jerusalem, up to the Temple Mount, up to the house itself, to worship, to seek the presence of God. But for Jesus, again, so much more, so much more because it reminded him of his father's house. And so he begins to talk about his father's house. This is the go-to. This is the, the subject, if you will, of of his helping his disciples to not be troubled. The disquieted disciples needed help. And he begins to talk about home and he shares five comforts of home. Five comforts of home in just these two verses to bring the disciples out of their disquiet. And the first comfort of home is simply the place, the place. Again, in verse two, in my father's house are many dwelling places so you could say the places the place my father's house and the places within my father's house and i told you last week it's not mansions if you're reading the king james translation great translation but it's not mansions in my father's house are many mansions again last week i mentioned who builds like that i'm going to build a house and put some mansions inside of it what just build the mansion in my father's house are many rooms where the idea of mansions come from the latin the latin word is mancio and it it also brought about the older english word mansion from mancio but even the older english word originally mansion didn't mean what we think of you know ivory pillars and palaces and luxurious decor the word mansions originally simply meant dwelling places or rooms rooms within a house a mancio come on over to my place we have a guest mancio i might say we have a guest mansion in the house we have a room prepared for you and it's not to say that heaven isn't amazing and awesome and if you want to look into that read revelation 4 and 5 read ezekiel chapter 1 check out isaiah chapter 6 i mean you can see some awesome images and pictures and descriptions of heaven that are huge and overwhelming but here Jesus is talking personal comfort. He's talking about dwelling places, rooms at dad's house. The word dwelling places here in the Greek is monai. Or Monet. Monet not as an impressionist impressionistic paintings of flowers. It's not the kind of Monet he means. A Monet in the Greek simply means a place to abide. A place to kick off your shoes and put your feet up and rest. A place to be at peace and it comes from the greek verb minnow not as in the ss but minnow meaning a, a place to stay again to abide to stay by the way interesting did you know in the first century temple built into the outer walls there were many rooms In fact, there were 38 chambers in the outer walls of the temple for the priests and Levites who came up to Jerusalem for their priestly courses. They were divided into courses, all the priests and Levites, and they would have their turn, and they would come up to Jerusalem to serve at their time. And when they came up, they had a room, a place prepared for them in the Father's house. It's a very specific picture that a Hebrew mind would go, oh, kind of like the temple. Yeah, kind of like the temple. But the temple itself is kind of like... My father's house, which has many rooms. Jesus uses the word stay, abide, the place to abide or or stay. He uses it 12 times. I want you to note these. Look at verse 10, John 14, verse 10. The latter part of the verse, he says, The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Down in verse 17. He says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. That's, that's minyo. If you look on down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. So it speaks of that closeness and it speaks of, of staying with, of being with. Skip on over to chapter 15 and look at verse 4. Where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. So again, stay with the thought. Abide means to stay with, to be with, a a place to be. And Jesus is now saying, stay with me. Stay with me, abide with me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He goes on and says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, same word, stay with me. He's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again and again and again, we read this word, abide. Let me ask you this morning, where do you abide? Where are you staying? What's your abode on this earthly plane? Because Jesus says very clearly again and again in this Thursday night upper room discourse, stay with me, stay with me. Stay with me. Well, my church has hurt me. Stay with Jesus. Do not depart from Jesus. So I can leave my church? Listen. The best way to stay with Jesus is to work through whatever problems you might have with your church or your family or your Christian brothers and sisters. Well, Christians have hurt me. Then love them and you will abide with him because, see, he commanded the one commandment, the new commandment I give to you that you love as I have loved and he loved us right to the cross. Stay. Where do you abide? This is is the language of closeness, the language of comfort. And it's language from one who is just about to physically depart from them. But get this, in its form in verse two, again, he says the adjective dwelling places. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places and it's only used twice. Right there in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And one other time in the entire New Testament, and it's right here in chapter 14, verse 23, where he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our Dwelling place with him. So while Jesus, on the one hand, says we have rooms made ready for us, then he also promises us that he's going to settle into the room of the heart right now. I want to come abide with you now, and I'm going to have a room for you to abide then. And that's how we get from now to then. We have Jesus abiding in the heart. Right now, Father, he says, the Father and I, we will make our abode. We'll abide with you. We'll come stay with you. We will dwell in you. It it still blows my mind. I still don't fully comprehend, except for the fact that I know every time I cry out to Jesus, he hears me immediately. It's like he's right here. He is present in my life. Carson says, the believer indwelt by the spirit thus becomes the dwelling place and hence the home of the triune God which is amazing. Put it this way, you are never alone when God is home because he makes his home in your heart. You are never alone when God is home. Psalm 68 verse six says, God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched Land. Only the rebellious are out there on their own. Only the rebellious would see outer space as a frightening, cold, indifferent, far-off, distant place where you're utterly alone. Do you remember the old statement about when the Russian cosmonauts went up into space and they and they orbited the earth that, that one of the Russian cosmonauts came back and said, I didn't see God anywhere. And when our guys went to space, the response was, We saw God everywhere. Because God's in the heart. When God's in the heart, it doesn't matter where you are. When God's at home, you are not alone. And he's right at home in the heart that opens the door and welcomes him in. So it's a two-way street here, my friends. It is, you have a place prepared in the Father's house, an actual, real place that you will go. But he says, let me just come on in and stay with you right now. I'll be home with you now, and you'll be home with me then. So I guess really when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, I ask, do you have a place prepared for him in your heart today? The next thing he expresses after talking about the places, the dwelling places, the rooms in his father's house, very casual, very comforting, very relaxed, he then expresses the platform places, and now the platform When he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you the platform. Every political party has its platform. And within the platform, if you know politics, you know that the platform then has its planks its declarations or its statements, its intentions, and the planks make up the platform. Jesus establishes the plank, this concept, this idea of our heavenly home on the platform of his own integrity. He ties it to himself. And what a platform. When Jesus says, I wouldn't have told you if it weren't true, he is banking his reputation on this. Republicans don't have this. Democrats do not have this. Libertarians, socialists, green, whatever. I think that needs to be a political party right there. The whatever party. (laughs) I have yet to see heaven, a heavenly home, or the Father's house on any political platform. You won't find it. But if I can compare the promise of our heavenly home to a plank, (laughs) then guess what? Jesus is the platform. If you've ever wondered about heaven, Jesus upholds the promise himself. Isaiah 28:16, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly in place. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. You trust Jesus, you don't worry about the heavenly home because if you trust Jesus, you know you have a heavenly home because he said so. And he based that reality on himself. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Peter and John quote back to the Sanhedrin, their own word, the, the, the Torah. And he says, to, they say to the Jewish leaders, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And then they say, and there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You're not gonna find it on Mars. You're not gonna find another name on Venus. You're not gonna find the name out there just south of Arundel. There's the name by which we can be saved. There is no other name but the name of Jesus who upholds the promise of the place in our Father's house. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul puts it beautifully No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus puts his reputation on the line and says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. You can count on it because I said so. His reputation. This is one of the many times where Jesus makes an all or nothing statement. All or nothing, you either take him at his word or you don't take him at all. I gotta drive that home. I am so tired in the church of people taking him partially at his word. We'll take some of what he said. We can't take all of it because all of it means weird stuff like that rapture stuff. All of it means strange stuff like he actually validated Jonah. I mean, come on, you can't really believe that, right? All or nothing, that's what Jesus leaves us. And if you're not willing to take him at his word, all of his word, then walk away because you're not taking him seriously. Jesus banks every word coming out of his mouth. It's on the truth and he is the truth as we talked about last week. Take him at his word or don't take him at all. He says, in my father's house are many places, dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you, Number three, the preparation. The preparation. These are all the comforts of home, the place. You know you've got a place, a room that's ready. The platform based on who Jesus is, the foundation and the preparation. The preparation. What Jesus says here, I go to prepare a place for you is the basis really of the colloquial belief, kind of the common belief the folksy belief that Jesus is still a carpenter, that he's hammering away up in heaven, and perhaps part of the reason for our long sojourn here on the earth, away from home, is he's just not finished yet. Listen closely. This preparation is not hammers. It was nails. This preparation is not wood for framing. It was wood for a cross. Preparation is not stones for a foundation. It was a stone rolled away. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he was talking immediately going to the cross. That's our preparation. The cross, his death and his resurrection, now now stay with me, are the finished work. That's what prepares the room in my father's house. And it was done (laughs) that weekend. John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, Jesus prayed, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and you know it, say it with me, it is finished. It is finished. Not It's mostly done, but I got some finishing work to do. It's finished. The walls don't still need trim. You know, the rooms don't need paint. The shower doors and closet racks don't need installation. It is finished. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, turn over there just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. You just keep going right in your in your Bible till you get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Where the Hebrew pastor grasps this concept and explains it. Where we don't have Jesus with his carpenter belt on up there in heaven working on your room. And when he finishes yours, he's going to get to mine. And he needs time because it's just not quite finished yet. No. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 says, By one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Down in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart or a true heart, In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to good love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near." It's all about the work that was completed, finished. It's done. die in the Greek. It is finished. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the tomb. I'm going to Hades. I'm going to resurrect. And on Resurrection Sunday, the work was done. The preparation concluded. The wait here on earth is not about unfinished rooms in the Father's house. The wait here on earth is about unfinished hearts here on earth. The work that continues our work, our calling, is to present the gospel that people might be saved and then finished. We continue here together that we might be sanctified and prepared for the rooms that are prepared. Your room is ready. That place in the Father's house is good to go it's our hearts on earth that need sanctification and many hearts yet on earth that need salvation all this truly is about you if you haven't welcomed jesus into your heart we are waiting for you the rest of us are all waiting for you there's coming a time there's coming a day i've shared before and i'm convinced of this a moment where the last person that god knows is going to receive jesus as lord The last person in this age of grace is going to say, yes, I believe, and boom, it'll be over, we'll be gone. Who is that guy? (laughs) I'd like to meet him because I got some work to do. That is our unfinished work here on earth, but the work in heaven is finished. Everything is done. Jesus has accomplished it all. The place dwelling places, rooms in the Father's house, the platform, Jesus himself, the preparation done by Jesus. And then in verse three, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The promise, number four, the promise. In the context of telling them that he was going away, Jesus now talks about coming back. I'm gonna leave you. I'm gonna go away. Where I'm going, you can't come right now. And and he lays this out and it upsets them and and they're hurt by the news and they're fearful that, what what is this gonna mean for us, Lord? And, And we've invested three years of our lives in you and now what? And Jesus starts talking about coming back or being with these distraught disciples. If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. And that place having been prepared, finished, Not three days hence. Jesus would come again very quickly in a way that they couldn't have, obviously didn't expect. Jesus is definitely here when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will come again. He says over and over and over. And he specifically refers to in this section, when he says, I'm gonna come again, he does refer to coming again in his resurrection. That they would see him much sooner than they realized. Look at verse 19 of chapter 14. Verse 19, he says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you see me, or you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What's wonderful about that is there's a spiritual promise there that you and I here 2,000 years later can see Jesus. We see him by faith, We don't see him in flesh. We see him by faith. We trust in him and we follow him. But Jesus quite literally is talking to the disciples and he's saying, the world's not gonna see me, but you will. The world didn't see him resurrected. The disciples did. At different points and different times. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul even lays out the, 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 the appearances of Jesus, culminating in 500 at one time, 500 believers at one time the world didn't see him in his post-resurrected state. His disciples did. You're going to see me, and you're going to see me in short order. Look over at chapter 16, verse 22. John 16, 22. Jesus says, therefore you too have grief now. He could see the grief in their eyes, and he knew it was only going to get worse in the next 24 to 48 hours. You too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Obviously he's talking about his resurrection. Obviously he's saying to the disciples, you're going to grieve, but you're going to see me and you're going to have a joy in your heart. That's going to last the rest of your life and really on into eternity. Now we share that joy because we're gonna see him and when we see him, John says we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is and the joy we're gonna experience in that moment, I'm totally getting ahead of myself, but it will be great. The disciples saw him in the resurrection and knew the joy and that joy carried them through their lives of ministry he also indicates by the way his spiritual indwelling i'm gonna come again if you look again back at chapter 14 i've already read this but verse 23 if anyone loves me he will keep my word my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him so that is the spiritual promise i'm going to dwell with you i'm going to i will come to you and to anybody who gives their life to Jesus today, immediately he comes and makes his home in the heart. He comes to you. He is present with you. But listen, in verse three, when Jesus says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where, you, that where I am, there you may be also. This promise of return is not about his appearing after the resurrection, before the ascension. And it is not the promise of the Holy Spirit in the church age. It is not simply the peace that he gives when we're troubled. It's not about his coming in the second coming even to establish his kingdom. Though all of those things were promised. Verse 3 is unquestionably about his return to receive the raptured church. The raptured church. This is what he's talking about. This promise in verse 13. And don't try to make it vague. The commentators make it vague. Well, it could mean one of many things, so whatever you want. No, you're missing the point. Jesus says, if I go prepare a place for you, so where is that place? It's in my Father's house, right? The place is there. In my Father's house, he says, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He is talking about us being caught up. He is talking about the rapture of the church. I'm going to receive you to myself, He doesn't just say, I'm going to come down to you and remain. He says, I'm going to receive you to myself. And that's the key word, receive. One of Les' favorite words, paralambano. You can write it down, paralambano. I'm going to receive you. It means to take or to collect or to gather unto the self. To bring to yourself yourself. I walk in the door and Naomi's at the counter and I walk over to my daughter and I just grab her and I pull her in for a hug. I have just paralambanoed my daughter. I have received her to myself. I've gathered her near to me. This is what Jesus is saying. And by the way, he used that exact same word just a few days before that same week Back in Matthew 24, verse 40, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. And the word taken is paralambano. And I know that people have gotten all confused about paralambano, about the word. There will be two in the field. One's gonna be taken, and one will be left. And there are those who say, taken means taken away to judgment. No, taken means received unto. One will be received and one will be left. And he's talking about the rapture of the church. This is unquestionable when you read it in the simplicity of the language. Taken is paralambano. One will be received unto me, one will be left. That alone should silence the debate about whether the one's taken or hauled off into judgment or they're taken to be home with Jesus. It's one of the many reasons, and there are Multiple reasons why I believe in and I teach the rapture of the church. It is not because it's popular theology because honestly it's not. Sadly, it's not. The rapture of the church is not taught in most churches. It's the minority. And yet it is so clearly biblical. It is so clearly in the scriptures. In fact, just the connection between Matthew 24 and John 14 one will be left. One's going to be paralambanoed, and then Jesus turns around same week and says, "I'm going to come and paralambano you to myself." So they would even have the context of what he had said and what he's saying, as the two connect and they tie together. "I'm going to receive you to myself," he says. Received where? First Thessalonians four sixteen. We had to go there for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will do what? Rise. They will rise first. So as I've said many times recently, if you die in Christ before the rapture happens, that's still good news. You get to go before any of us. So I may adjust my whole thinking on this. I'm like, I want to live to the rapture. I'm not sure I want to. Because if I die, I get to go before (laughs) y'all. I'm really torn on this one. But he says the dead in Christ will rise. Then, then he says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazoed, raptured together with them where? In the air, in the clouds, the Bible says. It doesn't say on earth. This is a different event. We'll be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. And so we shall always be with the Lord. We're going to go home. I'm going to come receive you to myself, he says. These are words of greatest comfort. In the context of the Father's house and the rooms, I'm going to come receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Think of it as not Pastor Rick and his daughter Naomi. When I walk in the door, you know who I'm really looking for? I'm looking for my wife. looking for my bride. She was my bride, but we're married now, so she's no longer my bride. She's my wife. And I'm looking for Cheryl. And I want to draw her into myself. Best moment of the day. To Paralambano. To to draw her near. This is his promise. The reason I mention this is not to say, ooh, think of Rick and Cheryl. Please don't. (laughs) That's private. I don't even know why you guys are even looking at that right now. (laughs) Think of it as a bride caught up in the arms of her groom I will receive you to myself that is his promise Jesus says I am coming to fetch my bride I am coming to fetch my bride 1 Corinthians 15 52 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed changed into what we will be dressed in righteousness finally in the day of Christ Jesus perfect glorified and drawn unto him received unto him John 14 verses 1 through 3 you Bible students know this it beautifully fits the Jewish wedding pattern of the first century the pattern was the bride and the groom were betrothed and then the groom goes to work and he, he builds on a room to his father's house. And then, upon the inspection of the finished work, he's released by the father to go get his bride. He brings her to the wedding. He takes her to the room that he's prepared, where they would go in, shut the door, feast, and enjoy each other for seven days. And that was the common custom Understand that the bride does not get herself to the wedding. The groom goes and gets her. And he brings her to himself. I love what Brandy Hayes just said this last week in staff meeting. She said, Jesus is such a gentleman. <laughs> it, it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, back, uh, back in the day, a gentleman was someone who would open a car door for you and that would not be an offense. A gentleman was one who actually cared for and was tender toward a woman because he wanted to honor her and and encourage her, okay? That was a gentleman. I'm being so facetious here. But a gentleman, Jesus comes and gets her. We don't have to find our way home, figure our way home. We trust him. We know that what he says is true. We know in the Father's house are many rooms. We know he wouldn't have told us otherwise. And we know that he's coming to get us. He's prepared the room, and he's on his way. He's coming to bring his bride to the Father's house. And with his own blood, sweat, and tears, literally, he prepared the rooms 2,000 years ago on the cross and through the resurrection. It is such a beautiful picture. These are words of comfort. These are words of encouragement. These are words Jesus speaks in that dark night, maybe into your dark week. Jesus speaks this truth. This is what's coming. This is what I promise you. This is what I am going to do. Why are you saying this, Lord? Do not let your heart be troubled. This is part of Jesus' prescription for the troubled heart. So it's not only realizing that earth and the created universe are not my permanent residence. This residence here is temporary. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul refers to this as a tent. We're dwelling in tents, folks, so if your tent's a little ragged and ratty, that's okay, it's just a tent. It's temporary. What he's building is eternal. Man, even if we could colonize Mars, temporary, temporary. I'm going to a place prepared, a place prepared, and I will forever then be with Jesus. We shall always, Paul says, be with the Lord. I'm a citizen, you're a citizen, believers of true heaven, married in to and through Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. But wait a minute, the place, what a great thought, a room in my father's house. We, we have a guest room, by the way, at my house. Cheryl fought hard for it. It's a guest room, and it is staying a guest room, and she has said very clearly, "I don't care how many kids move home or leave home or come in and visit or stay whatever." That is remaining a guest room. There have been a couple times I've said, "Well, Cheryl, why don't we just give that room to Honor Marie And she goes, "No, no. Honor Marie and Naomi share a room. David and Chris share a room. That's our guest room. No one gets it. The place prepared. The place is wonderful. To know I've got a place in my father's house. The platform is absolute. It's sure. The preparation, finished. The promise, it's awesome. These are all great things. But what is it that really makes a house a home? Jesus says that where I am, there you may be also. It's the presence. The presence. Many of you, and I know this to be true, absolutely love worship. You'll be the ones on the hillside Wednesday night. you love worship. Anytime a worship night is mentioned, you're there. you love the intimacy of worship, the closeness that you can feel. There are others among you who are very nearly addicted to intercessory prayer. You can't get enough of it. You're meeting every week. You're gathering with other believers. You're praying together. Why? Why do you love worship so much? Why do you love praying so much? Because in those times, we would say, we can feel his presence. We can feel God's presence when we pray, when we worship together. You know what? We have no idea. In your most intimate moments of prayer, in our most exalting moments of worship, we have no idea of the presence of the Lord. I'm not saying that we don't know him or can't experience him or, or be aware of him in the flesh, but we got this, this skin-tight limitation that doesn't allow us to experience him fully as we will once we have been caught up and glorified and in his presence. In that moment, we will see Jesus. We will know Jesus like we have never seen or known him before. His presence is the promise. This is what makes the father's house a home. And remember what the boy Jesus said in the temple. Luke chapter two, verse 49. Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, if you were paying attention, I said, Jesus uses the phrase my father's house twice in the New Testament. John chapter two and John chapter 14. Not in Luke. So what does he say in Luke? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Literally, Jesus said, Didn't you know that I had to be in my father? House is added by the translators because they weren't sure what he meant. (laughs) Didn't you know I had to be in my father? See, Jesus makes the father's house a home. Presence makes the father's house a home. And Jesus knew the presence of the father. In a way that no human being before or since could truly know or experience Jesus did. Now again, I'm not denigrating our times of worship, not in the least. I'm not saying we shouldn't all be in intercessory prayer. And I am not denying that there is a deep intimacy known and felt and realized in these situations. What I'm saying to you is as deep and intimate and wonderful as they are, they pale in comparison to when we are in the Father. Didn't you know I had to be in my Father, that's the best and greatest place. The greatest comfort I can possibly give you is to say we will be in the Father. We will be so wrapped up in the place where God dwells. Our dwelling place is prepared. Our room's ready. Brothers and sisters, we are going home. Amen? Amen. We are going home. When? When he comes to get us. Because he promised he would. 1 Thessalonians four seventeen continues, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you need words of comfort, there they are. If you're troubled, if you're struggling, if you're talking with a brother or sister or someone who's just so upset by what's going on in their life, why don't you just remind him? hey, listen, I know today's been a bad day, but we're going home. I know this has been a hard week, but guess what? Jesus is coming and he's gonna bring us home. And no matter what else happens in our lives, that promise is absolutely secure. These are troubled times, are they not? It's been a hard week for many, even right here in our fellowship. These are anxious times and fearful times and disquieting thoughts they can build to despair. But the Bible says, Psalm 94, verse 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your comforts delight my soul. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your comforts delight my soul. Then Jesus offers us all the comforts of home. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also.